So how many of you guys have ever made a mistake? Never, right? We're never. Right, right. You're never wrong. You're just not 100% right. Right, and sometimes those mistakes we make, right, when we do that, we, we all do the same things, right? Some of those we have to pay for, right? And some things are more costly than others, unfortunately. So I have a picture of a building here. Um, I should have a picture of a building. Hopefully it, hopefully it kept. No, you're good. It's just, there we go. Okay, so that is what's, uh, that is a London skyscraper, and it's nicknamed the walkie-talkie because it looks like, I guess the bigger picture, if you look at it, it looks like a, a, uh, a walkie-talkie, essentially, right? So it's designed by architect Raphael Vignoli, Vignoli uh, and it was notable. Obviously, it looks very unique, and it's curved and everything else, so it's, it's interesting. Um, so unfortunately, though, because you see all the windows there, look, it looks very nice, right? Well, apparently, though, the... The windows that are on its uh, south-facing wall, which is covered in reflective glass, and this is what I got from this website, it began redirecting sun rays in such a way that it was actually melting, melting cars. Oh my gosh. It was melting cars and causing fires. Now, some other, another article I said or I saw had said it basically called them death rays. Right? It had a, and so there, there's an Archimedes, Archimedes who's a, a Greek. Uh, Lived in Greece a long time ago. He's super smart. He, he developed a bunch of weapons and all kinds of inventions. And one of his things actually was called a, an Archimedes death ray, where it was basically a bunch of mirrors. And they would try to focus it on the people and start fires, right? Especially because if your boats are all wooden, it's much easier to have a bunch of people with mirrors shining on their boats and you can just catch it on fire, right? So that's what this building was doing, right? And of course, it cost probably millions and millions of dollars to build this building, right? But now all of a sudden... This problem, because they didn't understand how the sun worked, apparently, right? If you have your house facing south, you're going to be, your house is going to be warmer, right? That's why if you're looking for a house, you kind of always pay attention, especially if you don't have AC, like living here, it's kind of important which way your house faces or which way you know you want to put things because your house would be warmer by itself, right? So unfortunately, though, they had to fix this problem, right? Because you have cars, and I saw, I saw one article said it melted a Jaguar, just sitting there, just melt, gone, cars gone. Right, so for these to, to try to fix this, they had they, they had some temporary netting, right, and then they they ended up putting up a permanent sunshade, and this is what this, this is what the article says. It says that cost the sunshade cost in the estimated low single digit millions of dollars or pounds to try to fix this building. Right, there's another thing up on base that most people are not there, so. The one building up there, it's the main building for the, it's the control center for the range where they watch and control the launches out of. Um, so they put this building on the east coast, same, same designer, same everything, same layout. They put it on the east coast and they put a, an observation deck so you could walk out on like the roof, right? So on the east coast, it faces, all the pads face east. So they put the building here. And guess which way the, so all the, so I'll tell you this, all the, all the pads face to the beach, which is to the west, right here. So guess which way the, the, the observation deck ended up going? It went to the east. So they said, hey, we want to go see the launches, and they go out, and you're just looking at trees. Right? 
So you can't see anything. Oh, everything else goes this way. But they already built everything. This, you know, this is the observation deck. You can't just pick the building up and turn it around. Right? So we make lots of mistakes. And a lot of times these are costly. Things like this, right? They're costly mistakes to try to fix. You know, because we don't have a basic understanding of things. And so Haman, right? And, 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 and Esther, Haman was going through. And I'm not going to say God made a mistake. God allowed this to happen to do this. But, right, Haman wanted to kill all the Jews. He wanted to kill all these people because he was petty, basically. So God is coming and he's using Esther and Mordecai and the king as well to clean up Haman's mess, clean up the, the, what was allowed because he is going to do this and he is using, he's, he's using the most powerful man in the world at the time, the king of Persia, to fix the problem that he kind of helped create. So he's helping him fix his own problem, but he's doing this and so he's showing everybody else how powerful God is Right? And so that brings him glory, right? So this, this is going to bring him glory because we're going to see at the end of this that some things happen that are probably unexpected, especially in, in the days of Persia. So let's go ahead and read Esther chapter 8. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. <clears throat> and we will get into the rest of it as we go. <clears throat> so Esther chapter 8 verse 1. That same day King King Xerxes awarded Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. Mordecai entered the king's presence because Esther had revealed her relationship to Mordecai. The king removed his signet ring he had recovered from Haman and gave it to Mordecai, and Esther put him in charge of Haman's estate. Then Esther addressed the king again. She fell at his feet, wept, and begged him to revoke the evil of Haman the Agagite and his plot he had devised against the Jews. The king extended the gold scepter toward Esther she got up, so she got up and stood before the king. And she said, if it pleases the king, I have found favor before him. If the matter seems right to the king and I am pleasing in his eyes, let a royal edict be written. Let it revoke the documents the scheming Haman, son of Hamethida, the Haggagite, wrote to destroy the Jews who are all in the king's provinces. For how could I bear to see the disaster that would come on my people? How could I bear to see the destruction of my relatives? King Xerxes said to Esther, the queen, and to Mordecai, the Jew, Look, I have given Haman's estate to Esther, and he has hanged on the gallows because he, was, he attacked the Jews. Write in the king's name whatever pleases you concerning the Jews. Seal it with the royal signet ring and document, document written in the king's name and sealed with the royal signet ring cannot be revoked. Right? So here's the main point for this today, right? God rights the wrongs, but when he does it, it brings glory to himself. Right? God rights the wrongs. He is going to fix the things we break. He's going to fix the things other people break. Right? He fixed the world with Jesus' death, and we'll cover that again as we get through this. But he is, going, he is already ahead of us with the plans to fix the things we're going to break. And that's comforting news because it doesn't mean we just run amok and do a bunch of dumb stuff and just start building buildings that create death rays everywhere, right? Because we don't want the whole place to burn. But we know that when we do mess up, it's covered, right? He's got us covered. And so there's a quote, if you want to write it down, at least the, at least the address, the, the Bible quote. This is from 1 Samuel 2, verse 8, and this comes from Hannah's prayer. It says, or her song, it says, He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and he has them inherit a throne of honor. Right? And again, that's 1 Samuel 2, 8. So that's kind of what he does with this, where he fixes all these people and brings them out. 
So the first part, if you're looking at your, if you're looking at your outline on, on your on your bulletin, right? It's called this title is called the undoing the damage. And so when we undo things, a lot of times, like for these buildings, people get fired and they have to come in and fix stuff, right? So we fire the old team that messed everything up and we bring in a new team, right? So this is going to have new owners. There's new plans and there's a new holiday that comes out of this. There's there's things we can rest in. So the first couple of verses are a continuation from chapter 7, right? This is all one scene. We could have easily done a few of these chapters kind of together, but it's important that we break this up. So this is this is kind of this continuing scene because the king really interrupted Esther. He was so mad at Haman. He's like, hang him now. Like, don't even wait. There's no trial. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the executioner. I'm the judge. That's it. He just kind of heard that he had made this plan, so he just went and killed her, killed him. So now we have to get back to the rest of the business that Esther was going before the king to fix. Because it wasn't just that Haman had made the plan, it was the fact that now they have to stop the plan. Because he had done nothing to reverse this plan yet, so technically it's, it's a law that's still on the books. So they're waiting till you know, the end of the year to, to kill the Jews, and so everybody's... That's just the status quo. That's what's going on. <clears throat> so all of a sudden, though, now that, now that Haman is gone, Mordecai comes in and Esther says, oh, by the way, this is my you know, adopted father slash uncle. And he's been doing all these things. So, hey, yeah, we're related. And I wasn't doing this to just bring him into the family, into the fold of being rich. But he is helping me do things. He's, he and I are working as a team, essentially. So... And the fact that the king had just rewarded Mordecai for saving his life, he said, all right, you're the, you're the guy I need. So he takes the ring off of Haman's finger and says, all right, here you go. Here, you are now like the vice president, basically is what he is, right? He's the prime minister, the vice president, however you want to look at it. He's the number two guy in charge of the kingdom all of a sudden. In a matter of, you know, this is a matter of hours, if not minutes, really, with all this stuff taking place. So he gets promoted into this now vacant prime minister position. And Esther finishes up and says, also, here, you get to have all of Haman's stuff. Here's his house. Here's his possessions. Here's his land. Whatever he owned, it's all yours now, Mordecai. Right? So all of a sudden, kind of instant wealth in, in, the, in the home and everything else with this position to go into. Now, right? Is it, is it, did Haman get, like, the vice presidential house? kind of thing, or was the, the prime minister house, or something like that, or was that just given to him by the king, or did he already have it? It's unclear. Either way, Mordecai is now the owner. And boom! Just like that. New job, new home, new stuff. New owners. Right, now all of a sudden we see this is how it's working, right? So it, wouldn't it be nice? Hey, you're a Christian? Here's your check, here's your new car, here's your new house, here's your perfect little life, here's your house with your picket fence in a town, full of Christians and you just live here in your little commune and do all this other stuff. No, it doesn't work that way. It'd be nice kind of in a way, right? Some people have tried it. I mean, that's part of the reason they came to, people came to America. Honestly, the Puritans came for that reason partially to set up their own new kingdom in a sense. But for us, it doesn't work that way. You know, we don't get some evil person stuff just because we become Christians and they're not. But Mordecai got promoted because this serves God's plan better, right? So whatever you're given is because God has given it to you so you can serve him better. You can bring glory to him because of what you've been given by him to use for him, right? He's not just given it to you just to have it. He's given it so you use it. So now, though, there are two Jewish people at the top of the, the Persian pyramid, essentially. 
They're in charge to the ranking people. And so Mordecai is really kind of functioning like Joseph from, from Genesis, the Joseph tale in Genesis, right? So he is now the, the, the second guy in charge of everything. And so Joseph used his position for good. He used it to save the Jews. Mordecai is also in a position now to save the entire Israelite nation from destruction. But there's another interesting thing, right, of, of this whole thing is, is this transfer of the king's ring to Mordecai. And so Mordecai now speaks for the king. He has the power to sign documents on his behalf. Right? When I was in the military, I had to sign things. So I had to write letters on the commander's behalf. Now, he would sign them, but I had, you know, his signature block was on there. But I had to write it from his viewpoint. I had to kind of write it. Like using his language because he was writing it to his boss a lot of times. He was writing on somebody else's to somebody else who was above him. So I had to write to that level to say, okay, this is going to the wing commander. This is going to the big boss. I can't make, I need to make sure my boss doesn't sound like a yokel. Like, hey, sir, we, we done good. You know, thanks for letting us play. You know, whatever it is, right? I had to make sure it sounded very formal, very official, very proper because it's coming from him. And so he is now doing it. Mordecai is now speaking for the king, right? But as Uncle Ben says, great power with great power comes great responsibility. That's a Spider-Man reference if you don't know it. So he, that's what he tells Peter Parker. He says, with great power comes great responsibility. He's just kind of giving him a good advice, but this is right after Peter Parker becomes Spider-Man. And so he's trying to figure out what to do. How do, how do I act as Spider-Man? I have all these superpowers. Do I just go around getting money from people? Or do I go around helping to make sure people don't steal from them? Right? It's, this, it's, this, it's this kind of struggle. Because Haman had the same power. He had that ring a minute ago. But what did he use it for? He used it to make a decree to say, I'm going to kill all my enemies just because I don't like them. Because one guy wouldn't bow down to me. See, Haman used it for, for, for revenge and death. But Haman, or excuse me, Mordecai is going to use it for good. So here's our application is that our actions should glorify God. Your actions, actions, excuse me, should glorify God. But this isn't because you just earn points. This isn't just so say you, somebody can say, wow, good job, you did great. But it's because of who you are now representing. Right? It's because of whose jersey you wear, essentially. I made this reference before for sports teams, but you, know, you, you put on a sports jersey, you play for that team. You're not playing for yourself. And there's a big scene in, in, if you've seen The Miracle on Ice, the movie about the 1980 U.S. hockey team, that's one of the things he emphasizes. He says, you're playing for the name on the front, not the name on the back. So you're playing for Team USA. You represent America. You don't represent Johnson or Williams or, or Wilt or whoever. It's Team USA. So you're a team. So we represent Team God. Right? That's who we represent. You represent him. And so Jonathan Edwards, though, because our actions should glorify God, Jonathan Edwards said, from time to time in Scripture, embracing and practicing true religion, repenting of sin, and turning to holiness is expressed by glorifying God. As though that were the sum and the end of the whole matter. Right? That's what it's all about. That's why we do what we do, because all the sacrifices we do, all the coming to church, all of our repenting, turning to be Christ-like, glorifies God because you have what people see as the old person and then what they see as the new person. And some people are going to say, oh, that's, you're just faking it. You're just trying to get into heaven, earn your way, all these things. You're just a goody two-shoes. 
But really, if you're doing it wholeheartedly, you're motivated because you're glorifying God. And we see this in Esther. We see it again in the next few verses that Esther puts her life on the line again because she has to finish going against the king's edict. She's like, hey, I know you made that, that edict that you essentially signed, but we got to reverse it. So I know you got to go back on what you said, but you, gotta, you, you have to admit you're wrong and make a new one because this is better for the people, right? Because Esther and Mordecai are working to save people and not kill them. And going back to Joseph in Genesis, his actions, right? Joseph's actions glorify God when he forgives his brothers. He was in a position he could have easily put them in jail, killed them, whatever he wanted to do with them, and nobody would have asked anything. But he said, I know that when you threw me in the pit and then got me out and sold me to slavery, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so he forgave them and he glorified God in that action. Simple act of forgiveness. Jesus' actions glorified God when he endured Satan's temptations. Because his new, he knew his time had not come. He, just as Satan said, you can call a thousand angels down here right now and solve all these problems. But Jesus said, it's not how it's going to work. It's not how it's supposed to work. So he said, I'm going to wait. Right? Just because it, just like it had not come time to perform certain miracles. But he knew when um, he resurrected Lazarus, he knew that he had to die. He tells him, why did, why did you let him die? Right? Mary and Martha asked him, why, did you let, why weren't you here a couple days ago? You could have saved him already. He said, because then I won't be able to resurrect him from the dead. You wouldn't see the miracle. You wouldn't be amazed. So unfortunately, these things have to happen, not to show off. Right? I want to make sure, because some people will say, oh, he's just showing off. And that's pretty mean to let somebody die just so you could bring him back to life. You should just be there to, to let him live already, not having to go through the pain. But the pain is how we grow, unfortunately. That is, that, is how, that is how your muscles grow. If you work out, you get sore because you're ripping your muscles and they have to grow back. And they get bigger. So your faith muscles are the same way. You have to rip them apart a little bit for them to grow back. To get that scar tissue to grow back and get bigger. Jesus glorified God in his suffering because he fulfilled scripture. And he did exactly what was asked of him. So going back to the Puritans and Jonathan Edwards. right? They worked on bringing the theory of glorifying God into practice. Because it all sounds good, right? Oh, I'm going to glorify God today. Well, how are you going to do that? Because it's way easier to glorify God when you're by yourself in your living room and you don't have anybody around you to bug you, to cut you off, to be rude to you because you're not wearing a mask or anything of the sort, right? Much easier to be glorify God when you're not bothered by other people who are just testing you and tempting you, right? So the Puritans believe that all of life is to be lived to the glory of God and the majesty of Jesus Christ. And so author, Dr. Dr. C. Matthew McMahon points out that what made the Puritans so special was that they just said, they just figured that any man or woman who desires a life of true godliness before Christ should seek and search out those who exemplify a holy life. Right? We should be looking for the people who are our examples. Jesus, Paul, Peter. The apostles, right? all the apostles, down through church history, there's other people, right? Maybe a family member, you know, my grandmother prayed, my aunt prayed, my dad prayed, whoever it is for you to say, that's who I want to be like, because that's what Paul says. He says, be like me because I'm trying to be like Christ. 
So follow my example because I'm following Christ's example. So if you're following me, you're going to f- follow Christ as much. But, right, don't put too much stock in people because that's what happens sometimes, right? We, we get a little too, man, he's the greatest person. She's the greatest person. And all of a sudden they do something bad, stupid, whatever. I can't believe that person did that. Hey, we're people. What do you mean? You can't believe people made mistakes? <gasps> it's my shock face, right? People make mistakes. Oh, my gosh. Yes, we all make mistakes. So we have to balance that out, right? Because the only person who is our true mirror, our true example is Jesus Christ. Right? And so part of this walk the Puritans go on to say is that the Christian life is to mimic those who are a great cloud of witnesses and a godly heritage. So when we see the people that go before us with this jersey on, essentially, if we're going to stick with this metaphor, I'm playing these, I'm on this team with all these other players. Right? If, you're a, if you're a New York Yankee, you know, not everyone's a baseball fan, but people probably heard Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig, all these players. Like, these are the baseball players you want to be like, at least to play baseball. Not necessarily personally, but at least to play baseball for some of them. But that's who you, like, this, this is who is gone before us. Just like in the military, all these people who have done these things, they've gone before us. So I am just a, another person in the long line. And there should be people behind us too. So the Puritans exemplified in this extreme. So extremes, they were they wanted, they worried about doctrinal, doctrinal soundness and practical faithfulness before Jesus Christ. And it's not a bad thing, right? So they got the Puritans get made fun of a lot because, oh, you're a stick in the mud, you're unfun, whatever. Just like people think was, as Baptists were unfun. But what they really worry about is what does the Bible say and how does it apply to my life and how do I live that out? Not... How do I want to live my life and how do I prove that in the Bible to make sure everything's cool and I can do what I want? Right? The scripture alone kind of deal is what do I do? This is what it says. Okay, I need to change and come to the middle of what the Bible says. I don't make the Bible say what I want it to say to do what I want. And so when we do that, we glorify God because... All of these people, the great cloud of witnesses, they are in chapter 11 of Hebrews, the, hall, the faith hall of fame, essentially, because they had faith. They trusted God no matter what was going on. And so Mordecai and Esther, they still have to reverse it. They still have work to do. They have to reverse this edict. And so they have to work quickly and come up with new plans. And so a lot of the chunk between chapter th- or verse 3 and 14 are just kind of it's a lot of words, a lot of, a lot of uh, narrative to kind of get to the point across. But it does two things that's important in this. So first and foremost, it is used to reverse the actions of Haman, right? So it is, if you go back into the other chapter, I think it's chapter 3 or 4, when, when Haman comes up with his plan, the author goes through this kind of the same thing of showing how big this mechanism is and how, what the process is. And that's the other part of this is that the, the second part is that it shows that the Persians were administrative geniuses. There's all kinds of extra biblical information on the Persian history of how organized they were. Because they had this kingdom from India to Egypt and you know, north and south, however big it was, that they had to have a system to push out information. And so, they, so this is what the, the narrator is kind of telling us. Like, hey, it had to go to 127 provinces from India to Kush, so India to Ethiopia. All these things written in its own language for every ethnic group, everybody else, right? So it's a huge process. So it just kind of shows the scope of the kingdom as well 
of how big we're talking of. This isn't just like a, a phone call, especially in this day. This is letters in their own languages sent out to everybody, horse, you know, Pony Express type of deal going out everywhere. But what we need to draw our attention to is that Mordecai was able to reverse the edict, and he also wrote in a clause that allowed the Jews to defend themselves if they were attacked. Right? He improved the mistake that was made by him. He didn't just fix the problem. He actually improved it. Just like a home remodeling show. They don't just make the house look exactly like it was. They say, we're going to rip this wall out, put this in here, put this nice kitchen in, do all these things because we want to make it better. We don't just want a carbon copy of the original house. We want something better. And that's what this is. is this is going to allow the Jews to defend themselves later in the next, in the next chapter because people aren't going to get the message. Because right, it's likely Mordecai knew that people were not going to obey the king's edict just because they could be like, oh, I didn't get that email. I didn't hear the guy, you know, uh, doing the town crier thing and say, hear ye, hear ye, don't kill the Jews today, you know, kind of thing. Or maybe, hey, my internet was out. I didn't get the email. I have T-Mobile. It's terrible service. I didn't get the phone call. Or they maybe see the thing where it says, Somebody was, is a, it's a robocall, you know, and say, oh, spam likely, because it's the nice thing about sometimes now you get that little, you get that little thing that says potential spam or spam likely on your phone now, so I'm not answering that. You know, it's an out of area number, I don't know it. Right, they're, they're going to ignore this because they're going to want to do what they want to do. So Mordecai knew that that would may happen, so he put in there and said, look, Verse 11, it says, The king's edict gave the Jews in each and every city the right to assemble and defend themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate every ethnic and provincial army hostile to them, including women and children, and to take them their possessions as spoils of war. And this would take place on a single day throughout all the provinces of King Xerxes on the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. Right, so he writes this clause in there and says, Look, you guys are allowed to, people come to your house, you're allowed to defend them. If you kill them, you can take their stuff. So I want to say this part. Because people say, well, that's terrible. How could God allow that to happen? Well, one, this is, pre, this is descriptive and not prescriptive. So this is not something you get to do because it says it in the Bible. All right, so people ask you questions about certain things like this. It's kind of common sense, but at the same time, well, how come God can put that in there? Because this is for a very specific reason. And also, they have now become enemies of God. And I think this also goes back to 1 Samuel 15, where um, King Saul was told to eradicate the Agagites, and he did not. So this is the this is the finalization of that, saying you can do and take everything. So again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. We don't get to do this just because somebody upsets us. You kill them and take their car. You can't do that. It's against the law. But this is built in for the Jews. Now again, later in the book, the Jews apparently don't take anybody's stuff. They just defend themselves, and that's it. Right. They have the right, they have the freedom, but they don't exercise it. So on the same day the Jews were to be killed, they were also allowed to defend themselves, which is a kind of a handy thing. And so these riders are spurred out, and they go out as quickly as possible. And so this is to emphasize this urgency that they had to move because time kept moving on, and so they had a shorter number of time, amount of time to tell everybody to get the news out. So the, the, the writer is, uh, the narrator is trying to get them, get the reader to understand, like, this is important. Right? It went out quickly, quickly to do this. 
Because when God moves, everything falls into place very quickly and the lock is unlocked, right? So here's what we need to do for our application piece for this is that when we make plans, we need to make plans that glorify God. And so Mordecai and Esther felt a duty to protect their people. And so their actions or their works bear out their faith in God. It took a lot of timing and patience, but God provided everything they needed as he saw with him causing the king to recognize Mordecai for saving his life and then revealing Haman's plot to kill the Jews. Right? All of this stuff kind of fell into place. Likewise, the entire Old Testament spans thousands of years and talks about the coming Messiah. Right? People trusted God to bring them out. Right? These people are in exile. Remember, these people are in exile. They're still trusting God that they're in the right place at the right time. All these people. And so when Jesus shows up, some people were able to realize that the fulfillment of Scripture and prophecy was happening. Other people, because it messed up their system, didn't want to believe it or didn't acknowledge it or however it worked out. Right? The Pharisees were like, he's not the Messiah. He can't be the Messiah. To this day, the Jews do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They have a bunch of lists. They have a list for it. But we know that he is. So Paul, Peter, Barnabas, Matthew, Mark, Luke, James, everybody else made plans to tell the people of this good news. That scripture had been fulfilled. Everything you've been waiting for and reading about the last, your lifetime, thousands of years going on, has now been fulfilled. And now we're marching on to the revelation piece. Right? The end times, the eschatology. Even Jesus warned the seven churches on how to adjust their plans so they would glorify God. Right? He said, look, you guys are doing this and this and this. You need to do this, this and that. Whatever it is, because you need to correct yourself. You need to make sure your plans, what you're doing is, as a church, glorifies God. You go out and tell people about me and you're living a proper life that glorifies. And so Paul sums it up best, though, in Philippians 1, verses 20 and 21. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and die is gain. He was completely content being in prison, telling the guards about Jesus and doing whatever else, and however many times he was in prison. If that was what was expected of him, and if he was going to die, he was said, I am dying for Christ. He's glorified whether I live or die. Whatever I do, he is glorified in this, because I'm living for him. Because Paul was able to rest in his life and death, knowing that he had lived faithfully and he did all he could to honor God. And so the Jews find out they get a break and they can rest as well, right? So they get a new holiday out of this. So this is, they do institute the holiday of Purim at some point because of all this that happens. It's a big feast, fest, it's a big festival. But we see in verse 15 that Mordecai goes out, he went, he, he went from the king's presence clothed in royal purple and white with a great gold crown and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. So here it is. One of their own is now the number two guy in the kingdom. And they already knew that Esther was the queen. So now like, we're two out of three. We're in 66% of control of the, of the kingdom. Right? So that's a great majority, right? <clears throat> the people in Susa, at least, because they, they could see him, Right, and they had heard and they got the edict that, that rewrote everything because they were right there, so they got the news first. Right, they knew that their lives were saved. The news gets out, and people have cause to celebrate, and they, they, they celebrate. 
where they celebrated with gladness, joy, and honor. In every province, in every city, wherever the king's command and his law reached, joy and rejoicing took place among the Jews. That's what verse 16 says. There was a celebration and a holiday. Right? They said, this is great. We are Independence Day times 40. Right? You're not just free from this. You're free from death. You're free from punishment. And we also see, though, because of this happens, is that, that people became Jews. It says many of the ethnic groups of the land professed themselves to be Jews because fear of the Jews had overcome them. So there's two ways to take this. Scholars don't know how to take it necessarily. It kind of depends probably on what side of the cynic scale you fall on, maybe. So one way is that people became Jews because they were afraid they were going to get killed, so you might as well say, hey, I'm a Jew too. I'm, I'm going to say, I'm, I'm right there with you. I worship Yahweh, and yeah, just don't kill me. Right? So it's kind of a save your own hide, pick a religion to not die today kind of thing. Right? Right, because... This, if this is the edict, then they misunderstood Mordecai's edict that the Jews were only supposed to defend themselves. So if you were just a normal neighbor, if you were the neighbor and you didn't want to go kill them, kill your Jewish neighbor, you were safe. Nobody was going to come hunt you down, right? So they kind of maybe misunderstood. If that's the case, then they misunderstood what was being said to the whole thing about what, how it pertained to the Jews, but another way to look at this is that the pagans became Jews because just like Haman's wife said in chapter 6, he's like, right, you're going to fall because, oh, he follows the God of Israel, so you're going to fall. They understood that Israel's God was truly powerful and he was sovereign over his creation, which included the Persian Empire and the king and the people, right? It included everybody. They understood all of a sudden that God was here and everybody else was down here. So everything that was going on, whatever God they worship, did not have the same authority. And all of a sudden, Yahweh is the only one that has the authority over all this stuff going on. All the goings on have been because of God. This isn't people doing. This isn't Esther and Mordecai just executing all these crazy plans and schemes. God has been making all these things happen behind the scenes. So when everybody always says, oh, Esther is the book that God isn't in, God is probably more involved in this book than in some of the other books. It's just his name is not in here. Like there's no necessarily direct conversations with God like in Genesis or, or Isaiah or some other ones. But he's all, his fingerprints are all over this thing. And that's the important part where these people all of a sudden see what's what and they finally realize and they can also, they also want to glorify God. And that's the whole point of these things. So here's our application point for this part. So when God does something good in your life, take the time to celebrate and also share the good news with others. You know? Some people don't, if they win the lottery, they don't tell anybody because they don't want to be bothered. I get that. You don't want people bugging you for money all of a sudden, right? Hey, I got an idea you can spend your $40 billion on. It just requires $20 billion of it to get it started. Uh, no. Right? I get that. I understand. But, but this is, we're not talking about that, right? This is, this is God has taken me out of the gutter and put me on the sidewalk, and this is the best thing ever. Right? Unless you're selfish, you don't tell me. 
You should tell people the best restaurant in town, this is the best restaurant in town. Why? Because they'll stay open because you're not going to be, be able to solely support that restaurant just because you like it. So you want to tell everybody else this great restaurant, it's around whatever it is, great food, you should go too and tell all your friends because they'll keep getting better and they'll, keep, they'll stay open, right? God saved the Jews. God works for his people. And you see, God did the same thing with the rest of his people through Jesus, right? We are part of his people. He rescued people who were dying. He revived us. We were all dying. See, he moved me from death to life. He moved you from death to life. He moved us from darkness into the light. So we could see what's what and understand the glory that he does and the things that he's, the reason he's doing it for is because of you. He's bringing you, he cares so much about you. God so loved the world that you're a part of that he gave his only begotten son. Right, and that is the good news. That's the gospel, the evangelion. That's what it means. That's what the good news means. And this should be shouted from the rooftop. Go tell it on the mountain. When we have baptism, I want it to be a party because that's really a birthday party. When people come, it's a rebirth party in a sense. We can say, look what God did. We all have those same stories. Look what God did in my life. With this church, we can say, look what God did with this church. Paul says it best, though, before we get too big for our britches. Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, he says, For by such grace you have been saved through faith, and this has not come from you. You dug the hole, but you couldn't figure out a way to get out of it. So it does not come from you. It is the gift from God, not the result of actions to put a stop to. So put a stop to all boasting. Right? We can't say, like, I, I saved myself. I, you know, I, I, was on the, I was stuck on the mountain, and I, didn't, I waved off the Air Force pararescue guys who came in their, their helicopter to come get me off of Mount Hood. I said, I, I got this. Don't worry. You know, there were, I don't know, I think a couple of weeks ago, I forget where it was. I think it was in Texas. Some guy went out there, nobody in New Hampshire. Some guy went hiking with a, he didn't have any maps. All he had was his phone. He didn't have, I think he didn't have like anything with him, basically. So he got stuck on the mountain. I think the New Hampshire guard or whoever saved him was contemplating on charging him because he was basically unprepared for the situation. It's the same thing when you see you hear people driving off into the snowbanks because they follow their GPS and it says keep driving right. And you can see the snowbank clearly. Like, hmm, should I keep going? I don't know. Well, there must be a road under here somewhere, so I'll just keep going through it. It just hasn't been plowed yet, right? No. Because you're going to get stuck and you can't say, because the only thing you can boast about then is it's a, it's a story like, yeah, I got stuck on the mountain because I'm a dummy and they had to come get me, Right? The pararescue people or the search and rescue people saved me. I don't get to take any credit for that. You know. It's the same thing with, with this. And so Romans chapter 3 verses 26 through 28 says, He did it. So talk about Jesus. He did it to demonstrate in God. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? Because of what law? The law that requires works? No, because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of law. So we trust that God is coming to save us, that he did save us, he has saved us, we are saved. 
right? Present tense. And he saved us to demonstrate his righteousness at this time, the time he did it. So we don't have a reason to boast. It's not like we were good enough to Jesus to come down and give us, to get us, right? Because people say that. I'll go to church when I'm better. I'll go to church when I'm good. And why are you going to the hospital? If you're healed, why are you here? Why are you sitting in the ER if you're completely 100% healthy? You don't need to be here. You're sick. You need to be in the hospital because you're sick. But sometimes we're stubborn. I'm stubborn. I'm not sick. I have a little cold. Right? I'll be fine. Let's drink some chicken soup. But you know that there's no way for you to earn Jesus' love and salvation. It's already given to you. And we need to remember that. So we don't have to get wrapped up in trying to do all of these things to, to earn it. Now we do all these things to glorify God. That's the difference. Right, we're on the other side of that. So here's our conclusion, though. So I got some Bible verses. I'll try to go slow with this, just so you can write them down. So first, God created everything through himself and for himself. All right, Colossians 1.16. And this sounds mean, maybe, and I've said it before, but it's, it's, I think it's worth repeating, is that God doesn't need our help. He, he, he is completely self-sufficient. It's called the aseity of God. He, he is a self-contained being. He doesn't need to eat. He doesn't need to drink. He doesn't need to do anything. He doesn't need our outside help. He doesn't need sacrifices as far as, like, other, other traditions, they would bring in sacrifices because I thought the gods would like do this and eat this and they'd be happy with it. Well, they don't need to do that. He's God. <clears throat> he created the world to declare his glory. He said, this is what I made. And again, not to be arrogant, not to show off, but he said, this is, this is me. This is what I'm doing. He formed and made man with the same intent. Isaiah 4, 43, verse 7. So he did these, he created us, so we, we are his greatest and highest creation. He, he made us to glorify him. But he condemns all who dishonor his name, and that's Exodus 20, verse 7. But he also rescues man to bring honor to his name. Again, we have Jeremiah 14, we have Psalm 25, we just read the part in Romans 2 that kind of echoes that same thing. He rescued the Israelites for the sake of his name, so he would not, again, be profaned against the nation. So he, we have... God basically evangelizing a whole Persian a nation didn't know who he was until this day. Because they had their own gods and everything else. And he placed Pharaoh in leadership to create for himself the opportunity to display his power and so his name would be proclaimed in all the earth, just like Xerxes. Xerxes was put in power to be here to do these things in this book. And so this is all part of his plan. And while we're living our lives, we should do things to glorify God. We should know, understand our place in the world. And so this keeps us away from the rules, right? This keeps us away from being legalistic, right? Should I, is God going to be mad if I don't do this or if I do this, right? No. All you got to ask is, is, is this going to glorify God? And you, as long as you don't do too many mental gymnastics... You say, yeah, this will. And the same thing, it keeps us from being too licentious, too just being whatever we want to do. Because it's going to say, is this going to glorify God? Yes or no? 
And when we make mistakes, when we do make the wrong mistake, we say, of course it is. And you knowing full well it's not. Or maybe we're just a gray area, maybe, whatever. God's going to say, it's okay. Now, you may be chastised for it. You may be corrected. But really, is the question is, does this glorify God? Does my speech and deeds, my heart and my words bring glory to God? Right, that is that is the that is it. That makes it very very simple. So does worrying about what is going to happen glorify God? No, it is not. Now, does that mean we just do whatever we want? No, because what message does it send? Though, if if you say you trust God, I trust God completely, but I'm super worried about everything that's going to happen. You probably don't trust God that much, really, then. Right? You really don't trust his plan because we went through Revelation partly because if, if we're in, where we, we are in the end times at some point, but if we are really, really, really in the Revelation end times, this is what's supposed to happen. This is what's going on. The church has never been supposed to be just the, the, the everything in the world. It's, we are going to be persecuted. We are going to have these problems. That's just the way it is. Because evil gets to rise up a little more before it gets smacked down permanently. Right? And part of this depends on how you view Revelation, if we're going to be here for the tribulation or not. I'm fully prepared to be here for the tribulation if it happens in our lifetime. And maybe that's just easier. Because if we're not here, then I don't have to deal with it. But if I am, I'm already prepared. But even that, that excluding just day-to-day -day stuff. If you're constantly worried about every little thing that happens, you really aren't trusting God to make, make sure things work out. And you're really cutting God off from your life. And you're saying, don't worry about it, God. I can handle this, or I think I can take care of it. Then you freak out because you can't. Then it's a little too late. So you've got to pay a higher price, right? Just like that building. I've got to pay millions of dollars, essentially, to have him come in and fix the problem. But if you just trusted him and just listened, you would build the building right. It doesn't mean I just say don't take any action. I'm not saying just sit around and just let everything happen either. Right? I'm not make sure we're clear on this. There are things, that, just like Esther and Mordecai, they have to do things. They're part of the plan. For your own good, for your own edification, for your own growth that we have to do. So, again, does this glorify God? Does this help? But see, they're still putting their faith in God to carry out that part of the plan. They're saying, I'm pretty sure this is what God wants, so we're going to do it. Because what they do is they focus their energy on the right things. They focus their energy on the right things to do for God. And they didn't waste their time or energy fretting or trying to change things that they can't change. They said, God's got all that part. I'm just doing my part. Because our costly mistake was paid for by Jesus. Our mistakes of sin were paid for by Jesus. The one and only Son of God, the only begotten Son, right? And it cost more than millions to fix the reflective windows that were melting cars. He paid the price with his life. And that is far more than just having to pay for a new Jaguar or a new whatever city block or whatever it is because it's one person, the one holy God. And so when you give your life to God, he is your new owner. He has the plan for your life and you can rest in the fact that you are no longer subject to God's wrath. You are subject to corrections, like I said earlier, right? When you do sin, when you mess up, when you make this wrong mistake. 
You are subject to corrections. But that is to set you back on the journey of, become, of becoming more Christ-like and more towards the point of glorifying God. So we do that. We learn about God. We pray to God. We talk to God. We listen to God. And that's the important part. We've got to listen to God. We can't just tell him things and then say, well, this is what I'm doing. And they say, oh, really? Go ahead. We'll see where they get you. I'm already ahead of you, so don't worry. I've already, I already wrote the check for your mistake that I have to fix, but don't worry. But hey, your life will be easier if you just do it this way. Because he, the Holy Spirit is our counselor. We go to him. We get guidance. We figure it out. So as we go out this week, right, think about, ask God how you can live for him and glorify him right, in our lives. And there are things you need to change about that. Are you things and things you're doing now? Or maybe there's a track you're going down already you need to kind of hurry up and stop the brakes. Right, so as we sing our last few songs, um, right, think about that. Think about how we could do that this week. And uh, let's go ahead and stand and sing our last couple of songs here as the band comes up.